0: And that music means it's time for the davis garden show this is don shore
1: and this is lois richter and we're recording this on wednesday and i'm told it's going to snow tonight what the heck is that about
0: don we're going to have a wild week of weather in northern california here we're recording this yes on wednesday february 22nd for broadcast on thursday february 23rd by which time some snow may have fallen in some parts of northern california snow we've been talking about this one for four or five days now it is a very cold storm most of you probably noticed tuesday very windy and much colder weather air being pulled in behind that very gusty wind that came in it's beautiful right now sunny going up to a high today of 52 bear in mind on sunday it was 67 so significant temperature drop here we've had frost each morning that it wasn't cloudy and there is some frost in the horizon as well but mostly this very strange phenomenon which as i say will already kind of have happened by the time you're listening to the show but worth discussing anyway snow levels dropping to about 500 feet or lower with this storm that's pulling through. So Wednesday night, partly cloudy than chance, it says here in the National Weather Service of rain slash snow, low of 34 degrees. Thursday, rain slash snow, likely. <laughs> and showers likely okay folks this is this is usda zone 9 9b we're in northern california i can remember i can count on one hand the number of times it's actually snowed here since i moved here in the 1970s so it would be very entertaining more likely what you all are going to be looking at as you listen to the show is a beautiful dusting of snow on the coast range to our west uh mount uh, snow mountain up in mendocino county which is visible from many parts of yellow county around Lake Berryessa there should be a lovely dusting pretty good amount of snow up there and when that happens it's possible that some snow flurries could have fallen on the valley floor by the time this happens more to the point rain showers Thunder is possible, mostly cloudy Thursday, and the high is only going to be 48 degrees on Thursday. Oh, no. 67 (laughs) on Sunday, 48 on Thursday. Hmm. Thursday night, showers and breezy, and then continuing Friday with a chance of showers, and it's only going to be 49 on Friday with a low Friday night of 34 degrees and patchy frost. I know almond growers, they're really, really nervous right now. Nonpareil, the highest value variety is in full bloom. By the way, you want to take some pictures, the very first almond bloom is all around the Sacramento Valley. Some orchards are in full bloom, others, other varieties continue over the next couple of weeks. So it's very pretty here right now. Last year, we had a hard frost at this time of year almond growers lost anywhere from 30 to 40 percent of their crop and others nearby were unaffected it's that kind of thing it's very local climate type of situation so chance of patchy frost friday night saturday morning saturday areas of frost mostly sunny but only getting up to 53 degrees saturday night partly cloudy then patchy frost again although the low they're showing is 38 degrees sunday another storm coming in a little stronger one chance of showers only going to be a high of 50 degrees sunday night chance of showers monday showers monday night showers tuesday showers likely highs around 50 to 52 for that whole period and lows around 40 so less likelihood of any freezing weather it looks like we're going into a rather turbulent and continued wet period into the middle part of next week so getting out of very dry february first three weeks of february well below average january of course way above average december way above average We've actually had our whole year's average rainfall already here in Davis, but it's disconcerting when you have three straight weeks without rainfall or with very limited rainfall going into a rainy period. None of these storms have a whole lot of rain in them, but there's going to be one after another and temperatures substantially below what we've been experiencing this week.
1: So I have a plum tree, which gives me like 700 pounds of fruit every year. It's pretty incredible. And it is totally flowered now. I I went out today and took another picture. It's gorgeous. Is there anything I have to do to protect it? Or should I worry about it or what?
0: From a home garden standpoint, no, uh, we did have questions early in the week, uh, someone posted on a Facebook group and someone also asked me at the nursery, I don't see any bee activity, I don't see any bees on my flowers, should I be concerned about that, because the temperatures were pretty low, European honeybees don't come out when it's cold, but they were coming out in the afternoon, so my guess is if your tree was in full bloom, middle of the afternoon, the bees were out there doing their job, you probably got very good fruit set, more than likely. Uh, When we had the injury to the almonds last year, they lost 30 to 40% of their crop in many cases, if you lost thirty to forty percent of your your Santa Rosa plum crop, I think you'd still be fine. Home I'd be fine. Yeah, yeah you, got, you got what a couple hundred. pounds. I don't remember how many pounds you said they 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 harvested off your tree, but uh, seven hundred. Yeah. So yeah. So if you lost forty percent of that, I think you'd start, probably still be okay. Direct frost mm-hmm. injury to blossoms is a concern. Of course, lack of pollination because of the cold temperatures is a concern. The almond growers, the you know the tree growers, the apricot growers have good reason for concern about this actually what you'll really likely see is them out spraying right after the rain to prevent fungus attacking because mm. brown rot can attack both almond and apricot and to some degree plums when they're in bloom or right after the bloom and that will significant can significantly impact their yield again that's an agricultural concern i had people wondering if they needed to cover plants because of this kind of uh, frost and uh, strange weather covering them is probably unnecessary we're talking about temperatures 32 33 degrees with frost no that's not going to do any significant injury
1: once the the cold weather is over uh will the blossoms still be there i guess my question is how long do blossoms stay uh pollinizable
0: Well, it slows down when it's cold, so they continue to open and it actually just spreads out the bloom is one of the effects that it has. So Mm -hmm. the impact, as I say, on a home garden fruit tree is probably not consequential. We got hail. That's obviously not good. That's going to literally knock them right off. So we're not real concerned about this and we're not concerned about the cold temperatures injuring things like citrus. If you you had a very young tree that you just put out and you'd already been covering it during frosty nights, okay, sure, cover it again. But I'm not real concerned about these temperatures we're looking at. I'm more concerned about the impact of these kind of winds and hail and turbulence on my little greenhouse, you know, whether it's going to be stable, things like that. So this will be an entertaining week, to put it mildly. And we may have some thunderstorms and all that kind of thing. But the most notable thing for at least the last week has been the snow in the forecast. We are at uh, an important time right now, which is seed planting time. Uh, that's something we'll talk about shortly. It's time to get going on things that you're going to plant out in your garden in a few weeks. It's a little early for many of those things to go in the ground. Although, of course, we've already had people. Hustling.
1: Hey, Don, is it time to plant tomatoes?
0: OK, um, I got a, I got a question from someone that was a reasonable approach to this. It was a, a request. This is to the nursery. Um, I want to know if we could get some patio, a patio tomato because she has a container. She said she thought the container would warm up the soil. And so if you get a patio tomato, she wanted to plant it early in a container in a sheltered location. You know, rationally speaking, that's fine. The problem as a retailer bringing in a flat of tomatoes, I'd have to put them out in my nursery yard um, and it's cold out there and they don't hold up that well in this, these kind of conditions. So if you're looking for tomatoes right now, in February, (laughs) (laughs) it's about to snow. Um, You'll need to go to a nursery that has a heated greenhouse. I guess I'll put it that way. If I had a heated greenhouse, I probably would have them growing out there. And I'd say, yeah, sure, I'll sell you one. So, you know, Green Acres is a nursery chain in Sacramento with several locations. I know they have greenhouses at some of their facilities. Pretty good chance they got some tomatoes in the greenhouses and they might be willing to sell you one. And yes, a patio tomato is a nice container variety. It's one of the very compact ones you do in a container. I have growers whose lists, one of mine has 19 varieties of peppers on the list that they sent me this week. I have to assume they're sending those to places that can hold them in heated greenhouses. It would be pointless for me to bring in any varieties of peppers and put them out in my nursery yard where the nights are dropping to 33 <laughs> degrees. It would not be good for the seedlings. So it's one of the, it's a kind of uh, split personality time of year at garden centers. We're still selling leafy greens and uh kale and, collards and Swiss chard and things like that. But it's really too early for the summer vegetables. And in March, it's really challenging because that's that really transitional time. It's kind of late for those leafy greens, late for the the summer, you know, for those those kinds of brassicas. They'll just flower right away if we have unusually warm weather, which is a common pattern as well. But it's too early for us to really legitimately bring in the summer vegetables. I tend to cram those places full of herbs and things like that so that it looks like we have something to sell. And, <laughs> and I'll bring in, you know, I do have just, you know. Couple of flats of six packs of girly girl. And celebrity tomatoes for the old guys—they're in my greenhouse. And you know what I'm doing at night? I'm bringing them into my house for you. So (laughs) (laughs) that's how far we're going to meet the demand of curmudgeons. Okay, you Um, should—you should
1: have a new subsection, the the curmudgeon area.
0: Yes, this is the curmudgeon department. Those are for you over at the corner (laughs) there. I have to explain to some of these guys. Almost none of my other customers want six of one variety of any tomato. I mean, that's a lot of Early Girl, a lot of Celebrity. They want six tomatoes or a room for they want six different tomatoes which makes more sense to me but that's okay I'm not (laughs) I haven't quite reached curmudgeon status yet
1: so what are you growing in the greenhouse right now Don and and how's it going
0: we are starting of course with warm pads a lot of uh, peppers we have uh, heating pads under them to get them going and we've actually been doing some of them indoors you know in our office or I have them indoors here and I put them out on a sunny day we're doing peppers and eggplant we started them in January and in February we use heating pads we even use grow lights if we have to when there's a lot of cloudy weather to keep them going they go outdoors into the pop-up greenhouses if they are if it's warm enough for that unfortunately this year 2023 it hasn't been warm enough even in an unheated greenhouse for those kinds of seedlings. Interesting mm-hmm. fact, the tomatoes in an unheated greenhouse seem to be fine, uh, but peppers and eggplant, it really sets them back. Uh, so it's very important to keep them warm at the roots. And that's where, for a home gardener, one of those simple heating pads that you can buy online will be very, very helpful. You'll find it uh, it keeps the soil temperature at 70 degrees. Peppers and eggplants take 10 to 12 weeks to get big that's enough. That's
1: three months, Don. Mm-hmm
0: yeah so january to february, february planting uh, we we just noted on the calendar february 1 in order to be able to start selling them in mid-april again for best results in the garden we plant tomatoes in april peppers and eggplants in may so we'll want to have the plants a couple weeks ahead of that for the early birds but to me really early For peppers and eggplant for retail sales is mid-april so february one for planting those to get them to plant out in the garden and by the way those same plants are fine planting out in may or even into early june um tomatoes we we plant the seeds in march we've done a few of them early for the early birds but for the most part we plant the seed end of february first of march even into early april they'll be in four inch pots in about four weeks they go fast And in fact, if you've ever grown them at home, you realize that the seedlings grow so quickly that they outgrow the containers. They get very tall and leggy and you get kind of concerned about how floppy they They, are.
1: They outgrow their roots too.
0: They do. And I personally keep shifting them because I know that there may, I have to wait you know i have to get my field mown before i, I could actually plant these out in the ground so i have just gotten into the pattern where as soon as they're root, rooting in you know fully rooted in a four inch or quart pot they go into a gallon can if they have to but again i don't mind an overgrown tomato plant a two or three foot tall tomato plant is fine just Mm -hmm. drop it down deeper in the ground and it'll it'll root out fine i do that all the time as i joke it gets them past the gopher zone but (laughs) uh, um, an overgrown pepper an overgrown eggplant that's you know been root bound in the pot that tends to stunt it for the whole season as does planting it too early so you know just don't jump the gun on your peppers and your eggplant Mm -hmm. but there are other things uh we we do uh start basil pretty soon even though it doesn't like cold temperatures a lot of people are just growing it in pots Um, I don't plant seeds of cucumbers or melons or squash until I'm going to be planting them outside within about three weeks of seeding them. They come up in a matter of days. They grow very, very fast, and they need very warm soil. So at our nursery, we actually start seeds of those in April and continue starting seeds of them in through May. So you can plant them out May, June, even into the first part of July. And the ones that really need heat, uh, okra, watermelons those two in particular they they shouldn't even go into the ground until June so we start the seed of those in late April to plant outside in late May or into June try just try not to start seed too early I get it people are you know the seed racks are very busy right now people heading over there to see what we have and buy them do your planning figure out how many plants you're gonna need how much you have room for if you do start them early keep transplanting the seedlings one of our absolute rules that we've learned from the hard way unfortunately keep them moving if it's root getting root bound in a three or four inch pot move it up to the next size even though you know that's a lot of resources and a lot of containers and stuff root bound vegetables should not go into cold uh, root bound vegetables don't do well and summer vegetables shouldn't go into cold soil so Mm -hmm. you know that's a that's your trade-off kind of develop a sequence and we actually have planting charts you can access online at our business redwoodbarn.com we have one uh, that we worked up with the yellow county master gardeners you can look at right there at the nursery we even sell it on their behalf so you can look at the the timing of this and get a better sense for it and seeds of basil sunflowers bush beans and corn can be planted anytime from about early april all the way into late june and some of those can be planted even later so there's but those
1: a... those you just plant in the ground don't you I mean those aren't things you have to put in a pot are they
0: you can plant them in the ground and that's often recommended my own experience with things planted in the ground is that the birds thank me very much for having done that Mm -hmm. so I do start these things in pots and I have a lot of customers who have that same problem so those are all things yes you can direct seed beans and sunflowers and squash and melons if you if you do that Start eating a lot of strawberries right now and save those little green baskets if they come in. <laughs> There's a good excuse. <laughs> Put them over for your, your blue- plants. Yeah. Blueberries also come in those baskets so you can have strawberries and blueberries. And wash them and save them. And when you plant the seed out in the ground, take that little green basket, invert it right over where the seed is, push it into the soil a little bit, And that will protect the seedling for the first few weeks and and don't even take it off until the seedlings are actually pushing up against the, the little strawberry basket. I've used that technique. I've also gone and bought that strange product called Hardware Cloth, which is a wire mesh product and made these little covered cages and just stick them over it. my own practice since we already are starting a lot of seeds in pots in greenhouses and worm benches and stuff is just do a few extra of those when it's time but bear in mind the beans sprout in like three days squash and melons three days i mean a week at tops and then they just start growing very very rapidly and they'll become root bound very quickly of those in particular squash and melons that are root bound don't do well if they're overgrown mm-hmm. even in nurseries don't buy them if they're overgrown start over uh it really you'll you be you'll get better results with a healthy seedling that's just rooted to the bottom of the pot than one that's been sitting in the pot getting root bound it just seems to really set them back when they're root bound that way okay well, we want to mention so, some what are those public service announcements yeah we bohart. we skipped all this stuff what, what are we doing museum bohart is announcing their 2023 summer camps applications are now open I have no idea what they do at summer camps, but they're an insect museum, so it sounds cool. <laughs> you can go to Bohart. I assume you go camp with the insects bohart.ucdavis.edu you need application and a recommendation letter deadline march 10th at 11 p.m there's the bio boot camp coastal for campers entering grades seven eight or nine that's the june and bio boot camp two is for campers entering grades 10 11 and 12 and that's in july into early august so for more information about bohart museum of entomology Boot camps, head over to Bohart B O H A R T dot UC Davis dot E D U
1: Don when you were a kid and you went to camp, <laughs> did you ever collect uh, lightning uh, light bugs lightning bugs
0: we don't have lightning bugs in san diego see see i knew you were <laughs> depraved deprived. i knew it. i was deprived and not depraved please use okay, your correct okay now vocabulary.
1: you're depraved you were deprived whatever
0: <laughs> no anyway no, no lightning bugs that i'm aware of in san diego county so all right
1: um i want to sister. Just... on
0: the other hand my sister did collect stink beetles ew Well, that's what most people said. (laughs) They're 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 called
1: stink beetles for a reason.
0: Yes, they are. She thought that was fascinating. But listen, okay, folks, my mother was a biologist. She was the biologist in the neighborhood. If there was an injured animal, it came to our house. We cared for injured seagulls, barn owls. Um, I had thir- We had 13 tarantulas, one after another, that we collected that we were finding out in the roads and pathways, and we raised them. Uh, we were not allowed to bring rattlesnakes home, but any other snake was fine with my mother. <laughs> she had a stack of aquaria at the back of the house with lids ready to go because she was quite accustomed to her two sons and daughter bringing in whatever animal we'd found, and we- she'd just sort of sigh and go, okay. Taken back, we tried to figure out what to do. She always had mealworms available. Now, that tells you she was a prepared biologist because we never knew what to feed them. 13 tarantulas in a row, each named Charlie. Charlie, one, two, three, four, five. (laughs) (laughs) We still never did figure out exactly what they eat. (laughs) So, so, uh, my sister collecting stink beetles was right in line with the family. And a stink beetle, by the way, not a stink bug. Stink bugs are something you find in your garden. A stink beetle is a very large hand side not hand size but it fits in the palm of your hand shiny black beetle and when you pick it up make it angry it raises up its rump and spews a smelly foul smelling liquid at you which my sister thought was hilarious and fascinating so she collected those i mean each of us had our own little eccentricities but uh, yeah, we 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 did our own version of Bohart Bootcamp there down in San Diego. Uh, there's a whole lot of new programming here at KDRT, and I urge you to go over to the schedule and check out. Some things have moved. Twang Thang, for example, has moved from Sunday morning to Monday evening. It still rebroadcasts on Sunday morning. A couple of new shows: the Serialist. I think we mentioned that one before, and we have this new uh, World Music show that is uh, broadcasting on Mondays that I think I talked about. That's called Crossing Continents with Gil Metavoy. And I do want to mention uh, Song of Dinosaurs. This dinosaur? A, yeah, Song of Wait a minute, Don.
1: Don dinosaur, there was no recording devices when dinosaurs were around. How do they know what the Song of a Dinosaur sounds like? How do you know? <laughs> I don't
0: know. That's the whole point. <laughs> so Pro- Professor A, that's the name of the, the programmer, has an extensive knowledge of prehistoric rhythms antiquated sounds and tectonic transformations in music these are songs from the prehistoric era reptilian rhythms lizard lyrics triassic tones a mammoth melodies with professor a that song of dinosaurs live fridays from 8 to 10 p.m replays during the week the rebroadcast times and the broadcast times for all the new programming here at kdrt are right there on the schedule guide check it out
1: I want to uh, tell people about this other thing that exists, which I didn't know about until you flashed that magazine at me. And this is, a, it's a magazine called California Agriculture. Yeah. And it's by the University of California Agriculture and Natural Resources. And um, it comes out every quarter. Um, he, the one he flashed at me was the October, December, 2022 one. But um, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. So, California
0: Agriculture is a is a product of University of California Agriculture and Natural Resources, and uh, it's been published for decades. I have received this as an actual magazine, hard copy, since before the internet. It's also available online, and you can get it simply by going to CalAg ucanr.edu i mentioned this because we talk about garden practices such as cover crops no tilling hedgerows you know planting shrubs to encourage beneficials this whole issue is about what they call carbon farming and that's a that includes all of those things we talk about and you can look at it and see how they've implemented these in a couple of public gardens urban agriculture public gardens in berkeley and Spain and the benefits of some of these practices that we talk about. And again, this is free, and you can find it online. If you're into the ag end of things, this they have done a lot of amazing issues devoted to what I would call modern trends in agriculture. And that interests some of you, I know. But this one actually gets right down to the garden level, although rather technical. So, uh, for example, with sustainable use of local inputs, urban agriculture delivers community benefits beyond food. And they give a lot of description of the different practices done at some community gardens. Well, what they do in a community garden, you can do in your garden. Hedgerow is a great idea, or just having shrubs that draw beneficials. So you can see how these are beneficial and see how they help sequester carbon. If that's something you want to follow up on, head over to, as I say, calag.ucanr.com. Dot edu, and you can sign up to receive it free as a PDF, or I believe there's ways to get it mailed to you, as I do myself. California agriculture, great product of the University of California Ag and Natural Resources Division.
1: So, Don, I have a question, and maybe I don't know if it's the right time to ask you or not, but. I enjoy having flower arrangements, bouquets in my house. And so mm-hmm. I like cut flowers. Now I have alstroemeria out there. That's yeah, a that great is. cut That's flower one, and yeah. it's yeah. prolific, but what have we got for cut flowers And and how do you do it? I mean, you're not gonna cut down your perennial bush
0: Where are you? Well, many perennials. I mean, alstroemeria is a good example of a rhizome forming perennial. The common name of alstroemeria is Peruvian lily. And you see them in a lot of floral bouquets because each cut bloom lasts two to three weeks. They're just an amazing cut flower. But right now, February to March, depending on where you're listening and how many blizzards are heading your way, is a good time to start the seed of taller annuals that you're going to use for cut flowers. That's why this is a particularly timely topic. And here right now at our nursery, for example, we're starting some that we've sort of tested. Uh, We've been doing a thing for three or four years now, trying to figure out which of those old fashioned flowers, the taller old fashioned flowers that the bedding plant industry abandoned years ago because they don't fit in little packs and they don't bloom in in a quart pot and they don't sell themselves at a discount hardware chain. Which of those can gardeners grow easily? Can we grow easily to sell? You know, two different tracks on this. And which of them do well here in the valley? I've talked to you many times about the Benary giant zinnia, for example. Phenomenal, the plant grows four feet tall. It gives you, each plant will give you 40 or 50 blooms. They have one foot stems and they and the flower lasts for at least seven to 10 days as a cut flower. So it's a, but you're never gonna find it in six packs because it won't ever bloom in small pots and it doesn't fit into what I call the bedding plant industry model. So that's one good example. Now that one happens to really need heat. We won't be starting those zinnia seeds until probably first of april but uh, right now we're beginning to do some some of the dianthus china pinks we call the annual dianthus there are also perennial dianthus it's okay to do sunflowers now sunflowers are surprisingly tolerant of cold you'll have if you ever had a bird feeder and you put untreated unchopped up sunflowers into the bird feeder which mostly seem to spill onto the ground They'll sprout in february they'll sprout in late january here and even a light frost doesn't hurt a sunflower seedling by comparison with zinnias or other things like that they have a much wider tolerance of temperature they're from they're an american native wild uh, flower i mean they're from kansas and nebraska and places like that zinnias by comparison are an american native flower from mexico so that tells you something about what their requirements are temperature wise so sunflowers are something you can start now and and you're not going to find sunflowers in six packs At garden centers, you're not even really going to find a whole lot of small seedlings of sunflowers because our experience has been they grow really fast in containers. They're the kind of thing you either direct seed if you cover them to protect them from birds, which think you put them out there for them. Or start them in pots, little peat pellets or little pots that you've made yourself, seed blocks, that kind of thing. Get them in the ground very quickly. Probably protect the young seedlings because they are very vulnerable to predation by birds and rats and so forth. But once they get going, they really take off. And the thing to remember about the sunflowers for cutting is they're what we call one and done. That plant gives you one nice flower and that plant is done. So you keep planting them all the way into the first of August. Every two to three weeks, plant some more sunflowers, either in pots. Or transplant them out in the garden and there's even some for those of you listening with limited space that are really dwarf plants that can be grown in a large container they still have pretty good sized root systems but sunflowers are a good example of one you could be starting now Uh, a little bit further on down the road we'll be doing china asters which are the annual thing we call an aster not the perennial plant we call an aster very similar to zinnias but less vigorous less abundant different color range there's actually true blues and purples in asters very commonly worth growing with your zinnias but uh, not as abundantly shall we say um there are great perennials that you can put in any time that are great for cutting. well
1: wait wait a minute don't forget cosmos you right. almost and, forgot cosmos Yeah,
0: cosmos is great for cutting even though it looks kind of wispy yeah. as a plant they're great cutting stems of anywhere from six to 12 inches depending on the variety and we will be starting though they're like zinnias they like heat My experience with Cosmos is a garden plant, which I always plant my vegetable garden. I don't do marigolds in the vegetable garden. I do Cosmos here and there to draw beneficials and just be pretty. They give a great late summer and fall bloom. They they go in May to June from plants, which means you start them in April or into May is fine. Or even into June, you can transplant them all the way into July. And they bloom mid to summer through the fall. They're one of the last things still blooming out there and still drawing beneficial insects and pollinators and, and all kinds of things. So they're very pretty in the garden. My one of the reasons I like them in the vegetable garden is they're lacy foliage, so mm-hmm. they don't crowd another plant. They're just kind of cohabit with it. You can plant them with your basil and they'll pop up and bloom behind it. You can plant them next to your tomato plant and they'll bloom right next to it without crowding the young plant or vice versa. So Cosmos is a great vegetable garden plant and great for cutting. So those are things we start in the spring from seed and in that same category, although not really for cutting, but well, it is for cutting. I guess we're right now doing corn flour. Corn flour is a wonderful cut flower. It's also of the things we tried the old fashioned seeds that you find in the back of the seed catalog, things we keep trying, experimenting with. It gave me probably other than the Benary giant zinnias. It gave me the, the greatest bang for the buck for a cut flower of everything we did they start them now you can start them as late as the first of may if you want in our climate they bloom uh let's say eight 10 12 weeks after you plant them they bloom for six to eight weeks lots and lots of bloom during that time period at that point they're kind of done so go ahead and cut them back they start falling over need some staking that that by the way is one of the big issues with cut flowers plan for how big they're going to get because most of them have to be you know they're tall plants they have long cutting stems so you're going to need to put them in the garden in a place where they're behind other things or where you're prepared to stake or cage them if that seems appropriate to your gardening style I don't plant things that need a lot of fussing so it either has to stand on its own Or be with other things that hold it up and uh, you know the things like cornflower put them in behind your penstemon or near your salvias and they'll blend beautifully with those things and then when they're done cut them down just cut them off at the ground level and you've gotten several weeks of bloom out of them now the other plant i'll mention although i don't really think of it as a cut flower but we've just been blown away by how easy they are to grow and how what a great garden plant they are is nicotiana nicotiana you hear it pronounced a bunch of different ways ornamental tobacco it is poisonous you know it well it's tobacco (laughs) so keep that in mind if you have young kids in the in the household um but they have the old-fashioned ones get two to four feet tall have these beautiful tubular flowers they're fragrant in the evening some of them are very fragrant in the evening particularly the old-fashioned one that gets four feet tall they will recede. I want you to know this is a plant that will naturalize in your garden. But in terms of the amount of bloom that they gave us last year, last couple of years, we've been growing the different varieties, the older types of Nicotiana, older types of fragrant ornamental tobacco were probably the most bang for the buck, as they say, that we got. And they're still blooming. I have a plan. I'm looking out the window right now. I have a light pink Nicotiana in full bloom in February that was a last summer plant so these are plants that will continue to flower and are at least in our climate are not particularly you know, hard, uh, harmed by frost only issue I've had is wind more than anything because they're kind of succulentish you know there's herb- 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 herbaceous plants that get battered by a strong wind but they bloom and bloom and bloom and they're very uh, popular with night flying moths So you'll get the hawk moths or sphinx moths visiting them and hummingbirds will visit them as well. Modern bedding plant nicotianas, we did these side by side, give a whole lot of bloom for six to eight weeks and they're done. And that's been a common pattern with what i'm going to call the bedding plant model you get more bloom you get a tighter plant you get a very attractive plant for containers great for barrels or something like that or a small bed those of you gardening with limited space might find an old-fashioned Ecochiana a little overwhelming but they don't bloom as much they don't go on as long and unfortunately i think that's been a pattern in our industry is breeding for more compact stature has led to less overall bloom better right away you know you're going into a garden center it looks great and it's already coming into bloom but in my experience a lot of those plants don't go as long so as you're looking at all these 15 or 20 seed catalogs that are piling up on your (laughs) dining table like mine go to the back of the catalog get the, go to companies like select seeds go to uh, you know some of the ones that like to focus on old-fashioned flowers and try some of these older annuals that have just fallen out of the trade for one reason or another and and what I, we're trying to figure out is what are those reasons you know like uh, we did a bunch of sweet peas one year why doesn't anybody grow and sell sweet peas well because they outgrow the pots too fast uh, why do gardeners not grow sweet peas well they need to be Stake and they need something to climb on. They look kind of rough at the end of the season. Okay. I can understand all that. They, they sort of fell out of favor. They're still worth growing if you want something for incredible fragrance. Those are fall planted, but we were trying to figure out why it is none of my growers ever have them in six packs or why does nobody really ever recommend them when they're so easy to grow in a lot of places, nasturtiums, same thing, you know, they've sort of fallen by the wayside. Well, they're not real, they don't lend themselves to the bedding plant industry. They're really easy for you to grow. They're one of the easiest garden plants there is in coastal areas of California. So look at some of these with a new eye, avoid the ones that are heavily dwarfed for the bedding plant industry. Try some of the older fashioned ones, but do read the descriptions about two things, how tall they get, whether they do what we like to call self-sowing <laughs> <laughs> self-sowing <laughs> meaning
1: for... plants once you don't have to plant again
0: yeah or the garden thug is the term that the brits like to use for it um for example nicotiana is reseeding locally where i have it planted on the you know the ground nearby where it was last year uh, larkspur a good example of something that reseeds quite a bit one of my favorite annuals is nigella persian jewels You'll only have to plant that once, I guarantee you. The flowers are fascinating, fun to photograph. By the way, the seed pods fascinate kids, and then they mm-hmm. pop, and there's seeds all over the place. In both cases, larkspur and and uh, nigella, they're very recognizable seedlings. And one second with a hoe will take care of it if you catch them in time. If not, you have a great big stand of larkspur and, and nigella. I can think of I can think of worse problems, but those are plants. That, and another good example in that category is borage, which has a beautiful blue flower. The foliage. It smells like cucumbers incredibly easy to grow again once you plant it it'll show up here and there in a number of places but quite recognizable and quite easy to manage those seedlings now for cut flowers perennials
1: and borage is not particularly a cutting plant but no, no, the no. others are aren't they
0: sure and uh, and borage no, also no, draws no, no bor- borage draws bees to the garden as well you know that's that's what it's mainly planted for <laughs>
1: We also have bulbs. Now, when I first started, I talked about alstroemeria, which is a bulb-like thing. But we have bulbs that we would plant now uh, for spring and summer, like dahlias and gladiolas for cut Mm -hmm. flowers, wouldn't we?
0: Yeah, gladiolus have really fallen out of favor. They're easy to grow. There's some issues with them. But if you want a long stem cut flower, I mean, you really can't go wrong with gladiolus. Uh, Be aware that thrips can be a huge problem on the flower. So you may have to spray or dust them. I think that's why they became less popular. But the time for planting them is mid-march through about the Mm -hmm. first of june and people who really are into them by the way they tend to really heavily amend the soil and this is one case where it definitely does give good results i think fertilizing would probably accomplish the same thing but the traditional method of planting glass is in heavily enriched soil Um, and you plant every couple weeks because each spike when you cut it when it's beginning to open well of course that's it that's all you're getting out of that plant again one and done kind of phenomenon so for plants like that you plant over time just like the sunflowers every couple weeks plant some more and can keep the sequence going dahlias uh, dahlias again have been heavily bred for more dwarf compact growth habit for garden plants but old fashioned dahlias are still out there there's still people who absolutely love them they're big gaudy gigantic things uh, range of colors and they are planted once the soil is warm so we really don't start putting them in the ground until mid-April all the way into the first part of June and a lot of garden centers have given up on trying to sell them to you as bulbs because nobody buys them that way anymore so just look for the plants in early to mid well let's say mid spring on those and don't forget for cutting gardens those old-fashioned bulbs that you plant in the fall are great daffodils incredibly easy to grow multiply like crazy if you don't really like the smell of the narcissus plant regular old-fashioned king alfred trumpet daffodils and they'll multiply from year to year here tulips are usually replanted although some varieties will come back for a couple years and some of the botanical types will multiply but those of course are fall planted where we really come into our own with cut flowers is with perennials I mean there are you mentioned and bulbs are perennials you mentioned alstroemeria which is a rhizome although most people think of it as just a garden perennial because that's how nurseries sell it columbine is a perennial that's very easy though slow from seed makes a great cut flower I would plant that one in the fall Uh, true aster the the perennial asters again you can plant them anytime for bloom in the late summer early fall Coral bells. Mostly, most of you are going to probably want to buy them. I can tell you that because we decided to try to grow them for sale, and it took us nine months from seed <laughs> available plant. So you're probably better off just buying them at your local garden center where they've gone to all that trouble for you. And they make great, although they look really delicate and little short spikes of, you know, 12 to 14 inch spikes of flowers. They cut great and they're great filler for bouquets. Probably the most popular cutting flower that is easy to grow here in the valley is lavender. Regular old English lavender, the hybrid lavenders, the French lavenders, the uh, the, the English ones with French names like Provence and Grosso and some of the others. Uh, they're they're They love sun they love drought they're okay with with dry con- garden conditions uh they're basically mediterranean plant well they are mediterranean plants they love our climate very easy to grow plant them anytime and there are lavenders that bloom as early as february in the case of the spanish lavenders and some that bloom all the way into the late summer or early fall so you can get lavenders to cut and bloom and bring into the house uh, all the way through the summer and then a couple of the late summer things Rudbeckia's and Echinacea, Rudbeckia is better known as Black Eyed Susan, and Echinacea, which is better known as Coneflower, a lot of new garden hybrids on those, and this is driving me crazy as a retailer because every one of the new garden hybrids that I plant grows and blooms and then it's done and it doesn't come back well, but the old fashioned ones do so our industry is not doing you any favors with these i've got to say this some of us still sell the old-fashioned types when we can find them but what happens in our industry and this is true probably in every industry the newest latest greatest echeveria or echinacea comes along and everybody starts selling that one And it turns out it doesn't really come back that well. The Echbeckias were a famous combination of Echinacea and Rudbeckia, except we're not really sure that's what it was. They were one and done. You buy it coming into bloom. To me, I'm looking at this and going, this is a biennial. You're buying it as it's beginning the end of its life cycle. As long as you know that, I don't feel like I'm ripping you off. But most places weren't selling them on that basis. So if you like Rudbeckias, like Black-Eyed Susan, look for Rudbeckia, Fulgida, Goldsturm. Want me to say that again? <laughs> if F-G-A. you can. Fulgida or Fulgida, Fulgida, F U L G I D A, Goldsturm, S T U R M, obviously from Germany. It's perennial. Most others are biennial. I have plants of Goldsturm that are now five, six years old, doing just fine and multiplying. It's old fashioned looking, smaller flowered, classic yellow with the classic black center. So it's a classic black eyed Susan. It's truly perennial. And the one group of plants i want to end this on probably is scabiosas and mm. cushion flower right now is a time to start the seed if you're here in california of the annual types for bloom late spring summer fall and typically even though we sell them as annuals my experience is those often will go for a second year there's also perennial scabiosas and they've become really popular with the industry because they bloom in pots no matter what i can tell you scabiosa fama blue in bloom any month of the year practically from well let's say at least from march through november and some of them bloom right on through the winter if it isn't too rough so perennial scabiosa is very easy to grow mildew is a problem in the winter but don't worry about it, it just goes away in the spring annual types have some amazing colors so again, they're right up there with bachelor's buttons for our cornflower with for us in terms of the the starting from seed, getting a lot of bloom that season. Scabioses were just phenomenal. So uh, probably a good group uh, to end with there because you can find them on the seed rack. You can actually find the old fashioned types here and there. And they're pretty easy to grow from seed. Start them now, plant them out April, and they'll be blooming for you in the summertime.
1: Well, that was lots of fun, Don. So i've got a question that's not so much fun can we do it sure so Gaina writes we are having some fairly serious damage to the bark of our meyer lemon tree we just noticed it today but obviously this did not happen overnight is this the work of rats squirrels raccoons we have rats that we can't trap but see every day we have a number of squirrels we're always chasing out of our backyard. And we saw a big raccoon on our fence a few weeks ago. <laughs> Any thoughts on what we can do to stop this? We're worried about the health of our poor lemon tree. And she sends pictures. The bark has been nibbled away on the top of so many branches here. It's yeah. just, I mean, literally, it's down to the, down to the core of the yeah. tree. It's not going to, okay. So- well it
0: could it can heal over, but this is the thing and these are great pictures this came this was to my nursery and I've uh, I've reviewed this with her um, that looks like pretty classic what I call tree rat or roof rat damage because they're very OCD little animals and they'll stay in the same spot. Night after night after night and nibbling is not really the term for what they did there. They've stripped off half of the cambium, the uh, number of branches. The cambium, using some jargon here, is, of course, the food and water conducting tissue of the plant. Otherwise, we wouldn't be so concerned. Bark is no issue, but they're going below the bark and taking away you know, the key uh the key way the plant gets water to the top and food down to the roots so that's a problem and in some of those branches at least half of the cambium is missing good news surprisingly plants can live with just half their cambium and on a on a branch that's gone horizontal a rat has no practical way to remove the bottom part of the cambium it would have to hang there to do it on that so it's going across the top stripping it off the top i doubt if they'll continue And girdle, which is the term we use for when you completely remove the cambium, any of the horizontal branches, but any branch going upright, there is a very good chance of that. We tend to mostly get calls about this in the fall, late summer, early fall, or or as the weather begins to feel, as the days get shorter, really. And some of these animals, I have been told by wildlife biologists, go out and start stripping stuff off taking snippets off of your conifers and peeling bark off of plants for nesting material. That's Mm -hmm. what he told me, and it certainly seemed reasonable they'd be coming back to the same place over and over again. Mm -hmm. Roof rats have multiple generations, unfortunately, and love to live on or near our houses or in our houses. Right after all the flooding in January, the atmospheric river storms where the the fields were completely saturated, and we had, what did we have? Uh, 18 inches of rain in something like three weeks. A lot of people were reporting invasions of their houses by ants and tree rats or roof rats because they were drowned out of their burrows at my old farmhouse here out in the country, which has many points of entry for those types of things. Every place one had ever come in before they were trying to come in. I spent a whole day going around and finding points of entry for ants and sealing those and points of entry where tree rats or roof rats might come in and sealing those because there was a concerted effort at that point for them to get into the house. They have multiple nests satellite nests which means that somewhere given the amount of damage on this tree there's a major nest and then they'll have other nests nearby where they can move their young to very rapidly in the case of i don't know flooding or uh, predation or someone suddenly pruning things so it's very challenging to control them because they have a lot of ways to to move and hide we were cleaning up nursery pots on the side of our building couple weeks ago and I suddenly heard a shriek and some of the kind of language you generally don't use in a retail setting (laughs) that was because my employees had lifted up some pots and some roof rats scattered yeah we had we had uncovered a nest well that's good news we uncovered the nest who knows where they went right after that but they were hiding in piled up pots that we had inadvertently left there for quite a while so if you want to look around your yard for where there might be nests of them you'll find them in wood piles piles of brush that have been undisturbed and have lots of places to hide. If you have one of those houses with interesting roof lines, you know, with with funny different angles of the roof, you may find nests up there, especially if leaf debris has blown in there. You may wish to pay a company to come and do this. There are companies that specialize in structural pest control of rodents and others and what they're going to be doing is walking around looking for where the runways are looking for where they might have points of entry into the house but that doesn't solve the problem on this tree and for that it's really challenging because i can tell you to take away food sources well there's food sources all that of, is the food source well and there's also food sources hanging there in the picture you can see them the, the Meyer yeah. lemons are hanging there there's um takeaway nesting sites well it's not just your yard it's everybody's yard so you can clean up your yard completely and you still have roof rats because somewhere else they're nesting and and it may be a yard that's neglected but it may also just be things like a neat wood pile that you're not using as rapidly as you thought you would and so they Have enough time to have a whole generation of rats back behind those piles of firewood, things like that. So looking around for that. And that's where a professional can be very helpful. And I have referred them to a professional that could do that. Most of the companies that do termite control, for example, probably have some training in structural pest control. But it'd be best to ask if you when you call whether they actually do that and what they do about it. Do they just come out and put poison out? We don't want that. We don't want poison going outside where you'll be poisoning rats and squirrels and things, and unfortunately, inadvertently poisoning raptors and other beneficials or people's pets as a possibility. So we just, we focus on the environment and removing the nesting sites and making it a little harder, if you can, for them to get up into that tree. They run along the fence line. Well, if there's big shrubs overgrowing the fence, Prune them back. They don't like to be exposed to the sky. They move very rapidly at night. They don't like to be exposed to the open sky where owls would come from. Prune away the easy access to the tree, realizing they can jump into a tree and climb into a tree, but make it a little harder for them. They may move on to your neighbor's lemon tree if you do all that. And then the last is barriers. And for the barriers, we get back to that strange product called hardware cloth, which is a wire mesh material, malleable enough for you to possibly frame in around at least the branches that are injured to prevent further injury on the ones that are already damaged. That doesn't mean they won't move to some other branch. Make it harder for them. They want to be able to settle in a place they feel safe, eat out the uh, the inside of your orange over a course of half an hour, eat the peel off your lemon over the course of 45 minutes, nibble on the bark, as Lois said, or pull away strips of the bark is what it really looks like they're doing, that takes time, and they they want to be sheltered and protected. So just think like a rat, and you can probably deal with your rat problem. Barriers are probably going to be the best thing you can do. Uh, uh, repellents are out there; they're mostly very foul-smelling things that I wouldn't want anywhere near my house um, or your food. Right. right uh, don't them on the lemons, uh, or um, things that make noise, or flash, or move around. So you can. One thing I've had heard people do is hang some wind chimes in the tree now I'm not a fan of wind chimes I think that having them is kind of rude to your neighbors but this might be a case where they might be useful or just things that are going to make it awkward for them those old CDs that AOL used to send out remember those <laughs> I knew a lot of people who took those drilled holes in them and hung them in their fruit trees <laughs> and the way they would move in the wind or, or bump them as they were going through the trees was surprisingly effective it actually would just sort of startle them and they don't like to be startled so make it harder for them to get in there there. And that may be a matter of taking some of that wire mesh material and just making a temporary barrier around that part of the tree is sometimes the best you can do. There's a whole lot of, there's a whole checklist you can go through, you know, remove food sources, find nesting sites, do barriers, poisons, traps, et cetera. But in the long run, probably just making it harder for them to continue doing the damage on that tree is going to be your best approach. I had a customer bring in a branch last year. And she, she had to show this to me, even though it was obvious what had done it. It was a branch of a Meyer lemon where there were a number of fruit still on the branch. She cut the whole branch off and brought it in, and none of them had any peel on them at all. <laughs> they had been carefully peeled. And she said, I couldn't figure out what had done this until I sent you an email. And I said, well, I only know it because I've seen this. In the case of citrus... Tree rats in particular will eat the flesh of navel oranges, and oh, that's peel. sweet. Yeah. yeah, it's sweet. They like it. They they'll make a hole, a very neat hole. They're very you know very tidy little animals. Eat out the entire fleshy part of the orange and leave the, the other part of it, the peel, hanging there, almost like a like a you know, birdhouse or something. Or in the case of tart ones, like lemons, they'll carefully eat the peel off the outside kumquats. They do the same thing. but The flesh is tart, so they don't like that. So they leave these fire <laughs> lemons hanging there <laughs> on the tree without the peels on them. She thought that was peculiar, and I'd seen that with my kumquats. Uh, I have a, you know, Nagami kumquat tree. And I would find these neat little piles of peeled kumquats at the base of the tree. No one in my family was doing that. I finally figured out, looking at a couple of them, that that they'd dropped them to the ground, which is easy to do with a kumquat, and then just sat down there on the ground, carefully eating the peel off of them. Um, so they can be frustrating, but they do tend to leave enough of a crop for you in the case of tree rats or roof rats. Squirrels, on the other hand, are absolute vandals in the garden.
1: So is this a situation where you want to get all the neighbors working on the problem at the same time? Or is this one where you don't want to tell your neighbors anything and just (laughs) let the refresh go to some other other
0: place. Taking a range management approach to this, um, there's a carrying capacity to use the term they use in ranching for the squirrels that are in your neighborhood based on the environment that's available to them, the amount of food, the number of predators, uh, the number of uh, nesting sites, those are the basics right there. Uh, and in range management, they know, okay, we have this much forage, we can have this many cattle on this, this area, that that's determined by your environment. And this comes up for example when someone said to me they wanted to use a live trap to catch the rat inside and take it outside and release it okay you know what One, if you don't seal the nest, the entry points, you've wasted your time. You've just created a new hobby for a rat. (laughs) Find the entry points and get back in because it knows where some food is. If you do couple that, by the way, with finding all the entry points and sealing them, fine. You've just put it back out where there's a sort of a given population. It really isn't rude to your neighbors for you to take a rat from in your house and release it back in your backyard. It doesn't increase the population particularly. That population is dependent on... How many places of overgrown or piled up debris there are within the five or six house area uh, where there's enough shrubbery overgrown that they feel comfortable harboring, uh, where there's enough food sources like your fruit trees and things like that. And so, yes, it would be best if you can work with your neighbors on this to reduce all those things, reduce nesting sites, reduce food sources that are outside. It's going to be a real challenge with squirrels because you literally have people feeding squirrels and mm-hmm. other people trying to get rid of squirrels so they're working at cross purposes and the one thing you can all agree on is that owl boxes would be great so okay everybody get owl boxes and that will probably reduce the overall population the feral cats will reduce the population to some extent except that these are of course night moving animals and your cats are usually asleep even if they're feral at night but uh, they could be making some dent in the population it would be best if you can peer over a fence and see a pile of firewood or something if you've got a way to talk to your neighbor about that, but that can be a very challenging conversation. That's probably where one of the satellite nests is of these of these tree rats, you know that they're they're. you can see them up in trees, you can see them down in the corner. But a wildlife specialist which the city of Davis has, by the way, walked through a customer's yard, he did a full consultation at no charge, which, by the way, is possible option if you're listening in the davis area city of davis has a wildlife specialist and he had time and so he did this and what my my customer accompanied him on this consultation he was walking along the fence line looking for droppings he was looking for points where places around the fence behind the house on the side of the house up in the roof awnings where there might be nesting sites he was looking for food sources other than the fruit trees if there were any he pointed over the fence of the neighbor's pool and said that's their water source not much you can do about that obviously but if the neighbor is putting out food for cats not a good plan so these were the things he was looking for and it might be worth getting someone like that to walk through your property and some of the companies that do structural pest control work might be willing to do a consultation to walk through and then they could perhaps figure out a way that you can communicate politely with your neighbors. You know going over and saying hey you got a bunch of brush in your backyard uh that's a problem because it's causing rats that tends not to go over real well so you'd have to present it Mm -hmm. as more of a here's our whole ecosystem i just thought maybe he could look at your yard while he looks at ours and see if we can find some mutual problem points and work on it together good luck with that
1: Okay, we have a couple of other uh, things to talk about here. One is an email we got from Kathy and Davis saying, do you have any experience drying tomatoes in a dehydrator? And what are some good tomatoes for drying? Does it, does it matter what variety of tomato you have done?
0: uh the meatier they are the easier it is so the people tend to want to dry the Roma types san marzano is good for drying um Juliet, some of those and yes i do well i have experience with drying them in the sun because in the summer here at tomato harvest season really simple way to do tomatoes is just cut them in half put them on a, on a pan or, or something put them out in the sun cover them with cheesecloth or something to keep bugs and birds off of them and they'll dry in 24 hours, they'll be dry enough to put into storage, and in 48 to 72 hours, they'll be almost almost completely dried. We live in a climate that is so dry in the summer that drying fruit outside is very easy. But I have customers and friends who dehydrate them. Juicy slicing tomatoes aren't great. You want sauce tomatoes, and uh, Principa Borgiza. Principa Borgiza. P R I N C I P E. Principa Borgiza. B-O-R-G-H-E-S-E, apologies to Italians for my pronunciation, is the classic sun drying tomato. It's really easy to grow. It grows like a cherry tomato. The fruit is somewhere between a cherry tomato and aroma in size. It's very meaty, very rich flavored. All you've gotta do is cut it in half so it dries faster. You can dry it in the oven. You can dry it in a dehydrator very quickly. So what you're looking for is one that just doesn't have a lot of juice, but it has more of the, the meaty solids. Uh, rugby which is one of my new favorite sauce tomatoes would be great for this purpose san marzano is a classic for it it's very low juice very meaty to me it's got a tough skin so it wouldn't be my preference but it certainly has its following particularly among my customers of italian heritage it's a, 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 a italian heirloom tomato so principia borghiza roma san marzano a rugby amish paste uh, any of a number of the others that are primarily sold as Sauce tomatoes actually are really good for drying, just because you don't have all that juice running out while you're in the process and you get more for your money out of a meatier tomato. It takes uh, just a couple days out in the sun, maybe a little longer in a dehydrator, but it's a little more controlled conditions. Very, very easy to dry tomatoes in this area either way. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore.
1: And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.